we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a low right now. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, what's going on? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Nick Springer. Derek Johnson's sick today. You know, it's that, it's that time of the year. You know, people getting uh, a little bit of sick. So hopefully... Uh, Derek will rest up and be back tomorrow. So, uh, show goes on, though. Show goes on. Nick Chuck Sports Talk today here on RCST. As always, got a great show coming ahead. We're going to get into a little bit of an early preview of UNLV coming up. Uh, also at 340, Henry Greenstein of the Lawrence Journal World will join the show. At 405, we're going to get to our KU mailbag. You still have time to submit questions at RCST1320 on Twitter. You can also submit them via email rcst1320am at gmail.com uh, for my favorite segment of the week coming up uh, in the 4 o'clock hour. David Lesky is also going to join the show in the 4 o'clock hour at 4.30 to break down some of the recent moves of the Kansas City Royals. That's right, the Kansas City Royals are making moves in the offseason. Who would have thought? Plus, we'll get to some Lance Leipold audio later on in the show as well. And as a reminder, tonight after the show, you can hear Hawk Talk with Bill Self coming up right here on KW1 at 6 o'clock as well. All right, off the top here, as I said, UNLV taking on Kansas in the guaranteed rate bowl coming up in uh, now under two weeks. We're officially under two weeks away from uh, the bowl game for KU taking on UNLV. So I decided to get maybe a little bit of an, an early look at, uh, at UNLV in this game coming up against Kansas, the guaranteed rate bowl in Phoenix as uh, Kansas looking for a, a nine-win season, something that has not been done very many times in the history of KU football. So... A lot to play for for KU, certainly uh, coming up in the Guaranteed Rate Bowl in less than two weeks now on uh, on the 26th. So UNLV finished the season 9-4. and four. They went to the Mountain West Conference Championship game and lost against Boise State 44-20. to They actually had a two-game losing streak to end the season. They lost their uh, final game of the regular season against San Jose State 37-31 to and then lost against Boise State in their conference championship. Their other two losses were against Fresno State back in October, and they played Michigan back uh, in the second game of the season back in September and lost 35-7, to which, listen, 35-7, to that might be a little bit respectable. Maybe Michigan, uh, perhaps Connor Stallions didn't uh, fly out to UNLV to, to check out their signs, and so they were able to keep it a little bit more competitive in that game. So those are the four losses. In terms of their wins, when you look at their schedule, they got a big win against Hawaii. They did play uh, Nevada, so one common opponent for KU and UNLV. Uh, UNLV went to Reno on the road just as KU did, and they won 45-27 back in October, so a little bit more of a convincing win than what KU had when they went to Reno. UNLV also got a win against Colorado State. Uh, They won at home against Wyoming, which ended up being a pretty impressive win. Also uh, beat Air Force, also a, a pretty good win, so... Some decent wins on the schedule for UNLV. They finished the season 9-4, and four, and now they will take on Kansas in the Guaranteed Rate Bowl. So when you first look at them overall, uh, starting with the offense, that's mainly their big strength is their offense. 35th in the country on offense uh, on ESPN's SP Plus rankings. 
uh, first in the Mountain West in points per game. They were uh, a pretty explosive offense. They could be pretty explosive. In fact, uh, that game against Boise State, in which they scored 20 points, that was their lowest scoring output of the season besides that game against Michigan, which they only scored seven. Every other game, they scored at least 24. They did score 24 in a loss against Fresno State, but uh, when they score, they generally win. They scored over 30 points in, let's see, 10 of their games, I believe. 10 of their uh, games, they scored over 30 points. So uh, certainly a, a quality offense, and uh, they are fifth in yards per play as well on offense in the Mountain West, and it's mainly has a lot to do with their receivers. They have a very, very talented receiver by the name of Ricky White. Uh, he actually made a third-team All-American by AP uh, earlier in the week, a very, very explosive player, over thir- almost 1,400 yards receiving, seven touchdown receptions on the season for him. Uh, averaging 17.1 yards per catch, over 100 yards per game, receiving on 81 receptions. That's almost 30 more than anybody else on the team. So he is a high-target, high-volume receiver and uh, definitely has a lot a lot of skill that KU will have to keep an eye on. And when you, th- when you think about from KU's perspective, you know Melo Dotson's coming back, so he'll be playing in the bowl game. Kobe Bryant seems like an announcement could be imminent. Uh, I don't know if you checked out uh, Kobe's Twitter. Maybe you saw that he was looking for some extra subscriptions to his YouTube to announce, to make his announcement. Uh, It would seem as though maybe he might be coming back. I don't know. Kind of hard to say, but potentially. So, you know, you're going to have Melo Dotson. You might have Kobe Bryant as well. So that, that suddenly becomes maybe one of the more intriguing matchups individually of this game. If it's, you know, Kobe Bryant or Melo Dotson matching up against Ricky White for uh, UNLV, Ricky White, Ricky White, also by far their highest-rated player on Pro Football Focus for the season, uh, a 90.7 grade uh, offensively for the season. That's nine points higher than anybody else on their whole offense uh, and also one of the best on their team as well. So he's definitely the player you want to keep an eye on offensively for UNLV. And uh, there was a lot of discussion about their quarterback situation where it seemed like he was going to transfer out, but then ultimately didn't. Jordan Maiava, a freshman, who ultimately did end up, uh, seems like he's going to be playing now in the game after there was uh, some conflicting reports about him possibly entering the transfer portal. Probably had to do a lot with the fact that their offensive coordinator, Brendan Marion, has been linked to some different possible jobs. But as of right now, they still there, and uh, Maiava seems like he'll stu- still be there as well. So as I said, really their strengths are the wide receivers – and it's not just Ricky White. They also have another wide receiver, Jacob DeJesus, who's a really quality receiver as well, 52 catches on the year. Those are really their top two guys. Their top two guys when it comes to receiving White and DeJesus uh, are their two main threats uh, receiving-wise in terms of volume and in terms of when they when, who they get the ball to in those situations. And because of that, they, uh, they are pretty good in uh, yards per pass, third in the Mountain West in yards per pass. Uh, so they are able to hit some big plays in the passing game. But again, you look at Kansas' secondary, assuming you have both Kobe Bryant and Melo Dotson back, you feel pretty good about uh, KU possibly matching up uh, strength versus strength there a little bit. And then you consider, on top of that, you know you could have a guy like Austin Booker possibly as well coming off the edge and some of those guys from on the D-line for Kansas maybe putting some pressure on UNLV. When you look at their offensive line, uh, pretty solid in pass block, 34th in the country in pass block grade on, on Pro Football Focus. So they've been pretty, pretty reliable, pretty solid uh, in the pass block. They've had some interesting games running the ball. They've had a couple games where they've run the ball very, very well. Overall, they're not necessarily a a dominant running team, but they did have four games this season where they ran for over 250 yards. They had two games with over 300 yards rushing 
uh, on the season as well. So they have had some games where they can turn to their ground game and be very, very effective. They do have a uh, quality running back, uh, Vincent Davis, who on the year 722 yards rushing. By the way, Mayava, he is a bit of a scrambler, not really 261 rushing yards for Mayava on the year. Uh, he's not necessarily, I wouldn't say necessarily his strength, but uh, six rushing touchdowns for Davis. They've also got to Dejan Thomas, who was a, had 12 rushing touchdowns on the year for them as well. So they, they can be a good running team if they really go to it. And they have had some games where they've proven that they can utilize that in a dominant fashion. Also, they are first in the Mountain West in third down conversions. So that's an area where they've obviously been been really, really good. And when you think about the Kansas defense, they had some games where they were pretty solid, but uh, also had some games where they maybe struggled a little bit to get off the field at times. So that'll be a key for KU is managing those third down situations and, and trying to keep UNLV a little bit more behind the chains, uh, which could be tough to do when you consider the explosiveness of their offense. So that's uh, some of what their offense does really, really well. Uh, some areas where they've maybe not been as great offensively. Mayava has been pretty good. Their their freshman quarterback has been pretty good, all things considered. Did lead them to the Mountain West Conference Championship game, obviously. But he just he's 105th in passer grade on uh, on PFF. He had six games with under his 60% completion percentage. And when you look at his total stats for the season, they don't jump off the page at you. 14 touchdowns for him, uh, just under 2,800 yards. Did throw for eight interceptions as well. He finished the season with a 63% completion percentage, uh, which is not not terrible. So uh, definitely good, but uh, maybe not necessarily fantastic. He's probably not a guy where you're thinking, okay, this this guy's going to be able to completely take over a game and really kind of be the difference maker. He's he definitely is good enough to get the ball into this into the hands of some of the skill players that they have on their offense, but. Uh, maybe not necessarily the guy that you need to be really worried about being that X factor type. So, uh, but definitely really, really solid quarterback, and uh, was was actually not terrible under pressure either for the season. Uh, in terms of their run blocking, as as I mentioned, their run block their run game is a bit hard to figure out because they had some games where they did really, really well, but overall they don't grade out very well as the run blocking line. Ninety seventh, their offensive line is in run block grade uh, in the country. So they don't they don't really have a one guy per se at running back, but they do have a, a decent stable that that they can uh, make some things happen with. But again, uh, they you know they had those four games with over 250 rushing yards, but they also had seven other games where they averaged less than 3.6 yards per carry. So kind of up and down with their rushing attack. So it seems like maybe in this game for Kansas early on, you might get a sense of if the rushing game is successful for UNLV if they keep going to it, or if KU can stop them on the ground early. Uh, that might convince them maybe to just kind of abandon it because they have had some games where they've done that as well. Uh, overall, six in the Mountain West in yards per carry for the season for their offense. So again, a, when you kind of break it down, you know that's some big some big blow up games, some games where they struggled. It kind of averages out to them being a, an average rushing team in the Mountain West. So a team that at Kansas, you feel like you should have the edge there if you're if you're Kansas and maybe can force this UNLV offense to be a bit, a bit more one dimensional. Uh, if you can limit their eliminate their running game a little bit, so that's kind of about their offense. Like I said, the guys to keep an eye on on their offense certainly the wide receivers. Ricky White again, a 13 All American wide receiver, uh, almost 1400 yards for them. And then you got the, the freshman quarterback Mayava. They've got a stable of running backs that are decent, but again, nothing to really write home about. And to me, I read this as KU should have the advantage here, especially in the running attack. And if you can force them to be one dimensional, yes, they have some great players on the outside. 
But uh, if you force him to be one-dimensional and put pressure on the freshman quarterback, Maiava, maybe uh, that kind of mitigates the success of some of those players on the outside. So that's kind of a look at the at the overall at the offense for UNLV, which is probably – it's definitely the better of the two units on the defense. We'll get to the special teams here in a minute as well. But when you look at the defense for UNLV, not really a fantastic defense overall. 98th uh, in the country on ESPN's SP Plus ratings. Seventh in the Mountain West in points allowed per game. Eighth in yards allowed uh, per game. So not necessarily uh, really anything to write home about. Uh, write home about about the defense. Uh, and again, you look at some of their defensive performances. They, against Boise State, it was a bit of a struggle. You know, they they did have a pretty good stretch in October and November where they had been holding some teams to less points. Only gave up twenty three to Colorado State, fourteen to Mexico, fourteen to Wyoming in a big win uh, for them as well. But Overall, I mean, a, a, I would say average to slightly below average defense in the Mountain West. And uh, one of the things that they are very, very good at, though, that kind of helps. And, you know, this was something that this is something that KU fans might be familiar with, with some of the previous defenses that KU had. They're really good at forcing turnovers. They forced 24 turnovers on the season. And, you know, you can be a defense that's not very good, that maybe gives up a lot of yards and maybe even gives up some points. But if you force turnovers, that can kind of, that can basically elevate you from maybe you're a bad defense overall but if you force a lot of turnovers you're you become a below average defense or even an average defense if you if you're able to be opportunistic 10 fumble recoveries 14 interceptions on the season for UNLV and again they fall they fall pretty average in a lot of their in a lot of uh, their their grade outs on pro football focus 42nd in the country in tackling grade 49th in pass rush grade they do run a 3-3-5 defense, which is a defensive scheme that has given KU some issues, but it seems like Kansas has kind of started to figure that out a little bit. Jason Bean has had had some success. You know, you go back to the Iowa State game where it seemed like Jason Bean was able to find some success in probably the best game, one of the best games of his career uh, against, a, against a 3-3-5 defense. Uh, you look at the Kansas State game where KU was able to use a lot of option to exploit the three that the similar defense that K-State ran. Now that was with Andy Kolnicki, so you wonder if that will how much of that will translate with Jim Zabrowski calling the plays in the uh, in the bowl game. Which, by the way, Lance Leipold did confirm that uh, that Jim Zabrowski will be the play caller as Jeff Grimes still tries to get acclimated and get more involved as as the uh, offensive coordinator for KU. But uh, yeah, so they do run that three three five defense. They're pretty solid on the outside, decent corners, pretty a, gr- a group of solid linebackers and uh, a couple D linemen that really stand out for them on that defense, but. That'll be something to keep an eye on is that scheme that they run. Uh, the things that they are not very great in, they have struggled against the run. And uh, if your ears perk up there, they should if you're KU because of the fact that KU's run game has been a staple for them. Some of the numbers they gave up, they gave up 344 yards on the ground to Air Force, which is obviously a triple option team. 301 yards, though, to Boise State in the Mountain West Conference Championship game. 233 yards to San Jose State in the in the week prior. Those were both losses, by the way. They did win the game against Air Force, but the 301 to Boise, the 233 to San Jose State, they lost both those games. They also had uh, four other games where they gave up more than 160 yards on the ground as well. So run defense is a bit suspect, and uh, if you're Daniel Hyshaw, if you're Devin Neal, as we ex- expect him to probably be playing in the bowl game, that probably gets you pretty excited seeing that uh, you have a chance to maybe rack up some yards on uh, on this run defense. They've also given up three rushing touchdowns in a game four times this season and at least two rushing touchdowns in eight other games. So uh, they've been uh, vulnerable to giving up a lot of touchdowns on the ground as well. 
And uh, they're not much better in their secondary either. 115th in their coverage grade by Pro Football Focus in the secondary. Ninth in yards allowed per pass in the in the Mountain West Conference this season. So then he starts to turn and look at Luke Grimm and look at uh, Lawrence Arnold and Quentin Skinner. Plus with Jason Bean, you feel pretty good about Kansas. The you know the early numbers from uh, like Las Vegas and stuff on this is that this could be a high scoring game, and that makes sense. The UNLV's weakest unit is probably their defense. Their offense has been solid, obviously first in the Mountain West in points per game this season. And you look at Kansas. Uh, kind of the same thing. Offense has been really, really good when with Jason Bean when they've been really, really effective, and they've been uh, the defense has been better, but certainly not uh, elite in any sense of the word. So, expecting this to be more of a high-scoring game, and I think that checks out when you look at a lot of the numbers that uh, UNLV has overall. So, uh, and also, you know, this is a game where it has one of the largest point spreads of all the bowl games, right? So, certainly Kansas getting a lot of love there as well. Uh, and then when you look at the special teams, this might be UNLV's best unit, actually, in special teams. They are sixth in the country on ESPN's FB, FBI in uh, special teams efficiency. By the way, KU is 100th in that uh, metric. Uh, and that's because UNLV has one of the best kickers in the country. And Jose Pisano, he's 25 for 27 on field goals this season. On a 40 yards plus, he's 9 of 11, 2 for 2 from 50 plus. So he's been really, really good. Uh, actually, it, one of their so Ricky White was a third team All American. Pisano was a second team All American uh, as a kicker for UNLV. So one of the better kickers in the country uh, for UNLV, which means that you know if you're the KU defense and you let UNLV get down into the plus territory, odds are they're going to have a decent chance to come up with some points because they have uh, a very very reliable kicker back there with uh, Jose Pisano, one of the one of the better kickers out there. They're also third in the Mountain West in net yards per punt as well. So they've been pretty quality in the uh, punt game as well. Uh, and they are first in yards per kick return also when they do return it. Uh, so that'll be something to keep an eye on in special teams as well. And uh, when you think about Kansas and special teams, they've had some big special teams play, but they've also had some special teams gaffes that have really hurt them in some games. So I think overall, special teams may be one of the, maybe the best unit UNLV has. The offense certainly can be explosive. Uh, the defense is by far their weakest unit. So, uh, again, I think if you're Kansas, you feel pretty good about uh, being able to control the game with your offense, especially if you're able to run the ball and be successful. And KU has a blueprint for handling a 3-3-5 defensive scheme where they feel like they can uh, still be successful. But uh, that's kind of an early look at uh, at UNLV. When you think about the early thoughts on this game and, and keys for Kansas coming in, the biggest one's going to be shutting down Ricky White, their star receiver, I think for sure. He'll be somebody to keep an eye on, which again, you know you know, Melo Dotson's going to be back. Kobe Bryant, still TBD. Hopefully that comes out sooner rather than later. But you feel pretty good uh, about KU in the secondary possibly being able to slow down uh, the, the stars on the outside for UNLV. So you feel pretty good about that. That's probably going to be a big key. And then offensively, getting Jason being comfortable, letting him do his thing and establishing the run game against against a defense that has been vulnerable to giving up big yards, especially in recent games. I mean, again, you think about Boise and San, San Jose State, the last two teams they played, combined over 500 yards rushing that they've given up in the last two games uh, coming into this one against Kansas. So establish your ground game and utilize uh, Devin Neal and Daniel Hyshaw if you can and and uh, be and have a chance to, to really control the game, I think, tempo-wise. Uh, you know, this is UNLV offense that likes to run tempo and likes to run quickly and uh, get to the line and snap the ball quickly. And that's been known to give Kansas the Kansas defense some fits at times, but they've seemed to maybe start to figure it out a little bit. So you, you feel like that might 
might be a little bit better uh, for Kansas in this game. In terms of players to watch, like I said, for, for UNLV, it's it's Ricky James and Mayava, the quarterback, I think, as well. For Kansas, Jason Bean, you know, he's he has a lot of time here to prepare for this game. And uh, you saw what happened when he had time to prepare when you look at some of the past performances he's had this season. And then uh, on the defense, keep an eye on the, I'm keeping an eye on the linebacking core for, for, for Kansas. I think this is a game where, again, if you're linebackers, if you're a Rich Miller, if you're J.B. Brown, if you tackle well early and shut down the run game for UNLV early, I wonder if UNLV would be more likely to just kind of abandon it, and uh, that would really make them one-dimensional, allow you to, to kind of uh, make things easier on your defense overall. So overall, I think early feelings on this game, feeling pretty good if you're Kansas. Yeah, they're a double-digit favorite for a reason, and uh, this feels like a game that Kansas has a really good chance to, to, to go 9-4. and four, right? I think the initial reaction to getting this bowl game was a bit negative in the guaranteed rate bowl, especially with the opponent. you know. But on the flip side, it's a good chance for Kansas to get a bowl win, something they haven't done since 2009, and uh, you know, get a 9-win season, something they, they haven't done very many times in the history of their program. So certainly I think uh, there's a lot to feel pretty good about this matchup when you break it down. Uh, if you're gay. So under two weeks now away from that bowl game, and you'll be able to hear it uh, right here on KLWN on Tuesday, December 26th. If you maybe aren't making the trip out, if you're uh, sick and staying at home and enjoying uh, the holidays with your family, you'll still be able to catch the game right here on KLWN as well uh, on the 26th. So just under two weeks away. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Henry Greenstein of the Lawrence Journal World is going to join the show. We'll talk a little bit of KU basketball and KU football with Henry. KU Milbag coming up at the 4 o'clock hour. David Lesky of Inside the Crown will join the show at 4.30 to help break down some of the recent moves that the Kansas City Royals have made. And uh, later on the show, we'll also get to some Lance Leipold audio. He spoke with the media over the weekend about uh, UNLV, uh, about the transfer portal, about the addition of Jim's, of uh, Jeff Grimes and the elevations of Jim Zabrowski and Jordan Peterson. So we'll get to all that later on in the show. We're going to take time out right now. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, it's Derek Johnson from Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. And despite sitting around in a studio all day, I feel loose and limber thanks to Massage Envy and their total body stretch service. If you have aches from a day at the office, working out, maybe a round of golf, Massage Envy can help. All you need to do is relax and breathe deep during the stretches, and they'll take it from there. It's great for your body and your mind. And they also have rapid tension services and advanced skin care. Massage Envy on 6th Street in Lawrence and 119th and Black Bob in Aletha. Welcome back into Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Nick Springer. Derek Johnson out sick today, but the show goes on. And uh, as always on the show here on Wednesdays, we are joined right now by Henry Greenstein of the Lawrence Journal World and KUSports.com. Uh, Henry, First off, uh, how are you doing on this Wednesday? I'm doing just lovely, Nick. It's a pleasure to be on, as always. And, you know, a quiet week with finals going on, so not much going on in the sports world, you would think. And yet, there's always stuff to write about. That's right, yeah. Always different stuff to going on. Uh, let's start with some KU basketball here. Uh, this is their first week without a, a midweek game going on, so they'll, they're off, as you said, until Saturday taking on Indiana. Uh, so normally over the course of the season, we've been doing the the Jalen Daniels worry scale. So I'm gonna try to I'm gonna shift that and apply it to basketball here a little bit. Uh, what is your worry scale about Nick Timberlake and sort of what his role might be for KU on a scale of one to ten? Like one being like 
he maybe doesn't have a role at all, and 10 being hands up could be, you know, a very valuable player. What's your worry scale on, on Nick Timberlake right now? Oh, I see. So if one is the worst, then I would say my, my worry scale is, is if one is the worst and 10 is like Nick's going to be absolutely great, then I'd say that I'm at like a four and a half right now. Because I really, it, it, it's still too early to draw any definitive conclusions about, about Nick. I, I do think he has been rather poor on both sides of the ball so far, and that's not a controversial thing to say by any means. Um, but I think there's time for him to figure it out. Um However, one thing I do think is I think he's a lot more likely to figure it out on offense than defense um, because of the proven record he has uh, of shooting so well over five years at Towson. I, I think it's it's likely, I would even say, that, that he figures that out and becomes the outside shooting weapon we kind of envisioned. But I still think that as based on what I've seen, as the year goes on, it doesn't seem too unlikely to me that teams will continue to target him with ball screens and all that when he comes in on the defensive side. Yeah, it really does seem like right now with with Nick Timberlake, it's a situation where if the offense can get there but and the defense can be just not terrible but just below average, maybe that might be an opportunity for him to get on the floor. Uh, but furthermore, you, you look at kind of what Missouri's game plan was when uh, some of the comments they made after the game was they wanted to attack Nick Timberlake and Johnny Furphy as well. Uh, does that continue at all that maybe KU's Bench guys that they have right now, Furphy and Timberlake, if teams are focusing them on defense, does that does that really concern you at all right now? It does concern me. I mean, it, it it's bad enough that those guys haven't been able to score consistently so that the offense kind of it gets hindered every time they, they come out. But certainly if they're reliability on that end, that's something that arguably I would say Bill Self is more sensitive to because of the way they, they rely on their defense to generate offense. I think they'll both get better, and there have been moments where I think Furphy's been really good on defense. They've just been uh, – he's been kind of swinging wildly from one end of the spectrum to the other, whereas, um, you know, I think I haven't seen quite as many flashes on that side for Nick, and, and that's sort of what you would expect from, from a freshman in Furphy to be inconsistent like that. I think he'll get that sorted out a little bit more as the year goes on. Yeah, and you look at Marco Jackson, the freshman who's been the main starter at that two-guard position for Kansas – you look at some of his numbers, and he's his perimeter shooting, especially from three, is he's really struggled, but he's been solid from the free throw line. Do you think that that could be an indicator that the three-point shot might get there eventually for him and that he can maybe grow his, his offense on the outside a little bit more? I don't know, really. I never saw that as a huge strong point of his game. I think as he gets more confident on the offense, that'll materialize more in terms of slashing, kind of like what we talked about with Johnny Furphy in previous weeks. Um, that said... I do think there were some plays against Missouri that could go a long way toward improving his offensive confidence on the whole, particularly that four-point play that gave KU the lead. But sort of like with Furphy, I don't, I don't want to see him as the three-point shooter in the long run because that's not making the best possible use of his athleticism. Yeah, and when you look at that Missouri game for Kansas, kind of a, I don't know, kind of a ho-hum win for them, right? Missouri gets off to a strong start, then Kansas with a big run in the middle of the game and towards the end of the first half that helps kind of propel them into the lead, and then they just kind of kept them arm's length of the second half. Uh, did you have any, maybe what was your biggest takeaway from that game in, in totality from that uh, KU-Missouri game? Well, one thing that stands out is that it seems like Missouri did the best job of any team thus far this year at shutting down Hunter Dickinson, but the way they did that, uh, was at great cost in other respects because that's what allowed K.J. Adams to get open for those floaters he started hitting that allowed KU to keep pace early on. That's how Marco Jackson ended up hitting that four-point play. 
because basically the Missouri's game plan was to stay really far off those two guys in order to clog up the lane so they couldn't get the ball to Hunter. And then when they did get the ball to Hunter, he was automatically surrounded by three people. And it worked. And I'll be interested to see if teams keep doing that, just sort of hoping that, that KJ and Omarco just do worse than they did against Missouri. I mean, I think we can see that as soon as this weekend. Like, keep an eye on how much Indiana's defenders sag off their guys and, and lean toward Hunter so that, that it'll make be more difficult for him to get going. That said, I think what I think Hunter found a way to sort of inexorably make an impact on the game just in terms of his rebounding and getting putbacks in the second half. So you really can't keep him out even if you can deny sort of his, his primary functionality on offense. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the play of K.J. Adams because that was somebody I wanted to talk about here. You're right. I mean, you look at what Missouri's game plan was. They were giving K.J. Adams a lot of space to work with offensively uh, in order to try to limit Hunter Dickinson, and K.J. took advantage of that. So I guess kind of to that end, I mean, do you think teams might try to have to adjust at some point and maybe realize, okay, if K.J. Adams is continuing to be a threat in sort of that mid-range, those push shots that he was making, that maybe changes their defense? I don't know. How, how would you expect teams maybe going forward, or Indiana, for example, to maybe try to defend uh, uh, K.J. Adams? Yeah, I mean, I I would give KJ Adams some space too because we know that's not what his game is. But he's clearly adapting um, and making use of his under highly underrated passing skills. He's finding little pockets where he can go to to just sort of mix up the defense ever so slightly to maybe hand the ball off to someone like Kevin McCuller and get going back in the other direction. He he's really kind of embracing the way that they're underestimating his shooting ability. Um, I mean, uh, C.J. Moore, the Athletic, wrote a great piece about it this week. I think everyone at every outlet wrote something about K.J. Adams this week. But, um, yeah, check that one out because that was a, a good illustration of the ways he took advantage of that sort of defensive alignment. Um, but, yeah, I'll be interested to see exactly how that goes going forward. Uh, you know, as K.J. put it, I, I guess he said, like, I guess I just have to keep making those until they start guarding me. and. I think that's what it will be. I don't think teams will really believe that he consistently makes that floater until he does it for a few more games. Yeah, when you look at the KU offense, especially from the perimeter, they've been bolstered by Kevin McCuller, obviously having some great games from the outside. Uh, something that I've kind of been curious about that, that I'll post to you now here is, you know, I'm curious if Kevin McCuller does have a game where he is not hitting from the outside or not being effective from the outside, what what does KU do, you think, offensively in that in that scenario? If teams are trying to take away Hunter Dickinson and Kevin McCuller can't get on from the outside, and they don't have enough really proven shooting from El Marco or, or Johnny Furphy. How, how do you think that could affect KU in a game where if McCuller is not really producing from the perimeter? Yeah, I guess kind of the issue is if McCuller is not producing from the perimeter, you need him to start sort of charging wildly into the paint like he has with such great success this year. I, I definitely think this Indiana game is going to be kind of a Kevin McCuller-heavy game. I mean, not to get too much into it right away, but I think there's a chance that Hunter Dickinson and Indiana center Ware will kind of cancel each other out in the way that Hunter Dickinson and Donovan Klingon did. And I think that'll, there will be more pressure on Kevin McCuller and KJ Adams to, you know, slash into the paint, go for contested layups, maybe draw some fouls and get to the line along the way like they did in the UConn game and like they did against Missouri. I, I can definitely see this upcoming game taking a familiar shape in that respect. Yeah, I guess jumping right into it, when you look at this game against Indiana, you know this is a game that Kansas dominated last year at Allen Fieldhouse. Uh, but these are they look these are two teams that look very different from what they did last season. Uh, I guess yeah, kind of what's your early what's your early read on this game? What are you maybe kind of expecting out of it? 
Well, Ware is obviously a guy who who jumps off the page. You know, I think he's averaging like 16.7 points per game and nine rebounds. So uh, really top-notch stat line in that respect. He's seven feet, so he'll be a a physical challenge for Hunter Dickinson as well. Um, I do think that Indiana's potency will be diminished somewhat by the the injury to their point guard, Xavier Johnson. Uh, I don't know his exact status. I don't think Mike Woodson has talked about it recently, but I – I think he's still injured. He's got a leg injury of some kind. and So they've had a freshman running the point, and it's kind of hampered their effectiveness. Um, but they got some other guys who can create besides where, you, you know, they, they got a good forward. They got some experienced guards. I think it'll be a challenge. Uh, some issues Indiana has had, they don't really force turnovers, uh, much like Kansas. They, they, I think they only forced three turnovers the entire game against Auburn. Um, maybe that just speaks well of Auburn, but and then also they don't have a very good rebounding margin. I believe they are averaging point two more rebounds a game than their opponent, so could be a, a big Hunter Dickinson game. I mean, outside of Ware, who's averaging like I said nine point something, I don't think anyone on the Hoosiers is really making much of an impact on the glass. And granted, that does sound fairly similar to KU, but at least they have Kevin McCuller chipping in, and every now and then KJ will have a good rebounding game too. So. I would expect KU to, to be really aided on defense by the fact that Indiana is missing its point guard and by the fact that they can probably defensive rebound better than IU can. And that game, of course, will be on Saturday, 11.30 tip. You'll be here right here on KWN. We're talking with Henry Greenstein from the Lawrence Journal World and KUSports.com right now. Switching over to some KU football, now under two weeks away from the bowl game at the Guaranteed Rate Bowl against UNLV. But uh, there's been some some different things going on roster-wise for, for Kansas. So, uh, first off, Henry, Melo comes. Melo Dotson announces he's going to come back. W- what do you think is maybe a bigger move, though, for Kansas right now? They they also added a Deshaun Hanneke, tight end from Iowa State in the portal. W- which one of those two do you think is, is more notable for Kansas right now, Melo Dotson coming back or, or the addition of Deshaun Hanneke? Well, it's tough, it's tough to say because, first of all, I'm not very surprised that Melo Dotson came back, for one thing. But I think that the depth that KU has at cornerback is rather lacking. And so from that perspective, I think Mo coming back is more important. Um, we're not totally sure what Kobe Bryant is going to do yet. The fact that he's teasing an announcement when he gets to a certain number of YouTube subscribers makes me think of that announcement probably isn't that he's leaving, but I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, if he's tr- you know trying to get a bunch of KU fans to subscribe to his YouTube, I don't think the next thing is saying, I'm not going to be at KU anymore, but... <laughs> operating under the assumption that Kobe and Mo will be back next year, I think they'll be excellent. They were two of the best corners in the Big 12 this year. You know, Melo, a little bit more boom or bust, but he, he made some incredibly impactful plays in the season as a whole. I think it's a huge gift for KU to have him back. We don't really know what they have behind those guys at this point. Um, they got some good freshmen coming in, obviously, but we don't really know what Demarius McGee can offer. We don't really know what Brian Dilworth can offer, so I think that's very important. Now, granted, I don't want to Im- discount the impact that Deshaun Hanneke might have. Uh, you're losing Mason Fairchild. You want another big guy who you can go to in the red zone, especially for a team that hasn't always been great at converting in the red zone. Um, he seems really highly motivated. He's coming back home. He's annoyed about how the whole gambling thing went down. Um, I think that'll be a good addition as well, but I think that simply because of what else they have on the roster, you know, they still have a Trevor Cardell, even if they don't have Deshaun Hanneke. Whereas I don't, I don't see it being like that at cornerback behind Kobe and Noel. Yeah, and you mentioned with the possibility of Kobe Bryant coming back, like you said, you know, should Kobe come back and you do have Kobe and Melo back 
I mean, how good do you think that KU secondary could be next season with those two guys? You add in a guy like O.J. Burrows at the safety position. Uh, how good could that secondary be, you think, next season for KU? Uh, I think it'll be excellent. I think they'll benefit from not having to play against two of the better passing teams uh, that have left the Big 12 at that point. Um, I think that they could be the foundational part of the deep. Between them and the defensive line, they're going to have to do a lot of work because I, I have a suspicion that uh, just as we talked about defensive line being a potential weak spot heading into this year's uh, camp, we may be saying the same thing about linebacker this year. But I know that KU's targeting some linebackers in the portal. I'm not exactly sure what scholarship space that's going to fill out besides Tanaka's thoughts, but that's another story. But, yeah, I, I think there will be a lot of pressure on the secondary and the defensive line because I think the linebacker has a chance to be a weaker position. Yeah, it is certainly interesting with the transfer portal. You look at some schools that are seeing mass exoduses of players, but for now, Kansas, you know, not a lot of guys have really departed the program yet. Of course, that window to transfer remains open until January 2nd, I believe, so still plenty of time. But Lance Leipold kind of gave some of a little bit of his take on it uh, earlier over the weekend, I guess. What, what were kind of your takeaways from, from Lance Leipold's comments about the status of KU and, and the transfer portal? Well, in a way, it, KU is kind of defeating its own capabilities of doing stuff in the transfer portal by how good it's been at retaining its own players. I think everyone is super committed and unified uh, under Lance Leipold. Uh, people clearly don't want to leave very much. I assume that that means Mass Street is giving them what they want in terms of NIL. Um, but as a result of that, there have only been two scholarship players to enter the transfer portal. And the way they have things lined up is 16 scholarship players went through senior night and 16 scholarship players are coming in in the freshman class. And as Lance Leifold noted, when someone leaves in the portal, you try to replace their position. So Will Huggins goes in the portal, you get Deshaun Hanika. Tanaka Scott goes in the portal, though. I'm not totally sure they will add a wide receiver. Um, I don't think it makes sense to invest further in that position given what you already have there, especially given that Keaton Kubeka did well enough to put himself on the depth chart of the freshman. Um, so, I, yeah, I'd look at that spot going toward maybe a linebacker or a defensive lineman, which are the positions they've offered most frequently among guys who are currently in the portal, at least based on what I'm seeing on Twitter. Now, granted, they did just offer Devin Dye, the brother of Jalen Dye, who is a transfer from Utah State, I believe. So uh, keep an eye on that as a possibility as well. Yeah, and then you look at some of the stuff that Lance Leipold spoke about. Uh, Jim Zabrowski going to be calling the plays for, for Kansas in the bowl game. I guess, well, what's kind of your take on that with, with Jeff Grimes still working into the program, and how do you think, how do you think that relationship is going to work for those two guys uh, as offensive coordinator and co-offensive coordinator? I mean, I've said that I think that the, the titles are peculiar from the beginning. Uh, talking to Lance, last weekend, it really seems like the title is more of a cosmetic thing. Now, granted, he did say that Jim might have more involvement in designing the past game than he did in the past, which, I don't know, I'm a little dubious about that. I think the most the most substantive change could be that Zabrowski goes up to the box because Jeff Grimes has usually called games from the field. So that could be interesting. But I, I don't know. I think they'll mesh well. Um and I also think that uh, Grimes will mesh well with Scott Fuchs because of Grimes' extensive experience with some really good offensive lines. I, I totally understand why Leipold thought he was a good fit for the current staff. 
As for the bowl game, though, I, I'm not really sure. I assume that they'll be emptying out the playbook uh, because it's the end of the year and because they're moving into a new system. But I also don't know how like daring Zabrowski will want to be uh, with this opportunity. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It was a lot more compelling when we thought he might be a candidate for the permanent offense coordinator position. Now it's just like, well, uh, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> yeah, and, of course, that game just under two weeks away, KU taking on UNLV. Henry, uh, I appreciate your time as always from uh, KU from KSports.com and uh, Lawrence Journal World. Henry, what's uh, what's the latest going on? You got going on on uh, KSports.com? Yeah, we've been putting up a lot of interesting stuff this week. Always trying to mix in different voices besides mine, so people aren't just reading what I have to say all the time. Uh, so check out what Avery and Shane have been writing of late. Um, and yeah, looking forward to to heading up to Indiana. Awesome. He is Henry Greenstein of Lawrence Turner World. Henry, appreciate your time as always, and uh, yeah, safe travels up to Indiana. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, that was Henry Greenstein, Lawrence Turner World, joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. One hour down, two to go. KU Mailbag coming up next. Also going to be joined by David Lesky to talk Royals coming up later on in the 4 o'clock hour. This is RCST on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. 4 o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Nick Springer. Derek Johnson is out sick today, so hopefully uh, Derek gets to feeling better. Get him back in. So it's uh, Nick Chalk Sports Talk today here on RCST. Just had a good conversation with Henry Greenstein of the Lawrence Journal World and KUSports.com. If you missed it, you can check it out later on, on the show with our RCST replay, or also you can check it out anytime with our Best of RCST podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts, including on KUSports.com. Coming up in about uh, 25 minutes from now, we're going to be joined by David Lesky of Inside the Crown to talk about uh, the Kansas City Royals and some of the recent moves that they've made. That's right. They've been very active in the uh, offseason, which is something that for some Royals fans might feel a bit weird because that's not normally what the Royals do. Uh, also, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll get to some Lance Leipold audio as well as he spoke with media about a whole bunch of different things. UNLV, the transfer portal, Jeff Grimes, Jim Zabrowski. Uh, Jordan Peterson and more. So we'll get to that audio coming up in the four o'clock hour. But for right now, it is time for my favorite segment of the week. That's right. It's time for the KU mailbag here on Rock Jock Sports Talk. As always, thanks so much to everyone that submitted questions for the KU mailbag. And uh, you can submit questions anytime. We do the mailbag every week. So if you have a question you want to submit, feel free to submit it. We'll get to it eventually. Uh, you can hit us up on RCST1320 on Twitter. Uh, also, rcst1320am at gmail.com if you want to send us an email. Uh, hit just uh, lots of different ways to send in trivia or send in questions for uh, our KU mailbag. First up on the KU mailbag today, this comes from Jeff. Would you rather Kansas have a scholarship sanctioned hockey team with a hockey arena on campus or an extra parking structure for KU football? Now, this is an interesting question. Because KU is obviously in the midst of beginning to tear down the uh, football stadium. They're in the process of phase one of the Gateway Project. And as that project unfolds and KU builds the new David Booth Kansas Memorial Stadium, the parking situation around the stadium is probably going to look a lot different than it has in the past, which I think makes it a bit tough to really say one way or the other. You know, because I'm basically, I'm approaching this question looking at it from the future perspective of, Based off of what the new stadium is and that situation, what that will look like, would KU at that point need an additional parking structure? 
Uh, and it's really hard to say. It's hard to say because it's it's unclear exactly what that is going to look like in terms of parking. I know that was kind of a in the immediate aftermath of the announcement of the Gateway Project earlier this summer. That was kind of the initial reaction was, oh, where, where are people going to park? Where is everyone going to park? And I, I get it. I understand some concern there. But uh, also, I don't know. So it's hard to say. So, uh, yeah, by the way, you can uh, check out the destruction of uh, the old booth right now as we speak anytime with the uh, they got the live cameras streamed set up it's fascinating to me that people are so always so interested in watching things get destroyed uh, i don't know if that's a commentary on society or, or something else anyways <laughs> that, that's tangentially related to the question so i i, I enjoy hockey uh, I, I like hockey i wouldn't consider myself to be a big hockey fan basically uh, around the time that i was in high school and my freshman year of college at KU, I did get super into hockey for like a couple of years and I was really interested in it. And I watched a lot of games. I watched all the playoff games. Uh, and part of that was because at the time, uh, around my freshman year of college and around my high school age years, there was a, uh, on NBC, NBC did hockey and they had uh, Mike Emmerich as a broadcaster who I thought was the greatest broadcaster I've ever heard. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously I wasn't alive for some of the more famous ones, but I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed him as a broadcaster. And so that, that helped me really get into hockey. Uh, he since retired, uh, probably about three or four years ago now. And since then I have been far less interested in hockey than I was previously. Uh, but uh, I think it would be pretty cool if KU had a sanctioned hockey team. And I feel like this is a reasonable thing to give up to have a KU sanctioned hockey team. You know, if the question was like, would you rather KU have a, K a scholarship sanctioned hockey team or like, I, I don't know, something more significant than just a parking structure? This would maybe be a tougher question, but yeah, absolutely. If you're just going to say, hey, KU can have a hockey arena and a sanctioned hockey team, I'm all for that. That sounds like a lot of fun, and I would definitely go check out games uh, and, and probably enjoy myself doing that. So to me, I'm going to go with uh, the, the, the scholarship sanctioned hockey team with Hockey Arena for this one. But again, I think in looking forward to the future you could you could convince me also that maybe based on the gateway project and how things play out and what that looks like for KU that maybe it might be more valuable to have another KU football parking structure I could totally be convinced of that but without really being able to go into the future and see what that would look like yeah for sure I would take a I would take a KU, KU uh, sanctioned scholarship sanctioned uh, hockey team absolutely so give me that give me give me some hockey for uh, KU all right, this question comes from Earl. Favorite KU Indiana memory? And what's funny about this is I'm like 99% sure that we got uh, this question about a favorite KU Indiana memory last season before KU played Indiana. And uh, I think somebody asked us this similarly. Well, unfortunately, Earl, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, I I know a lot of people immediately jump to like the 1993 game and and thing, and you know, then you go back to that to that game they played in the tournament as well. Unfortunately, that was quite a while before I was even born, so I don't have any memory of those games. Uh, looking back, you know, I mean, listen, last season, Grady Dick goes four or five from three and scores 20 points in a 22-point win for KU against Indiana. That was pretty cool. You go back to the game they played uh, in Honolulu back in 2016. That was a game uh, in which Frank Mason scored 30 points uh, in that game. Uh, that KU lost that one, actually, 103 to 99. That uh, that Indiana team had OG Ananobi on it and uh, James Blackman Jr. as well. Uh, so, yeah, for me personally, I don't. It's you know I, I don't really have a lot of long list of memories like maybe older KU fans do about 
previous meetings with Indiana. So uh, I, I apologize early. You know, I just wasn't really fully around for some of that, some of those. Th- but but again, you know, for great. I mean, Brian Haney, the voice of the Jayhawks, is, is someone who uh, has regularly talked about that Indiana game for him in 1993 being like sort of one of the pinnacle moments of him completely falling in love with KU and KU basketball and everything like that. And I know that was such a such a big game. Uh, they played multiple big games during that time period. So uh, uh, yeah, so that, that's that's what I can offer there. Uh, next question comes from Ian. If you could either give Johnny Furphy's length to Jamari McDowell or Nick Timberlake, which are you taking? This is a good question. And for me, I would pick Jamari McDowell. And here's why. Johnny Furphy has... So Nick Timberlake has, has really struggled on defense. That's been well noted uh, for KU so far this season. Johnny Furphy has had his ups and downs. So if Johnny Furphy has had his ups and downs with the length that he has... If I were to give his link to Nick Timberlake, I don't think that would help Nick Timberlake really at all on defense. Uh, is kind of the issue because because he's already I, like I just don't know how much I don't know how much adding the length to, to Timberlake would like increase his defensive ceiling or increase what his abilities would be. Uh, and so for that reason, I would I would go with Jamar McDowell. I would give it to Jamar McDowell because Jamar McDowell has proven to be a solid defender. It's really his offense that's maybe been lacking a little bit. Uh, on small small sample size. But you get Furphy's link to McDowell, and suddenly McDowell maybe becomes your best defender off the bench potentially, right? Like even above Furphy. Uh, it seems like Furphy maybe gives you the best ceiling, but if you put his length on McDowell, I don't know. So I think that's why I would go with, uh, with, with McDowell here, just because, again, I don't know what adding Furphy's length to Timberlake would really do uh, because he's – Timberlake – I don't know that is. I mean, is length really the reason why he's a bad defender? I don't think so. It seems like it's more of a scouting thing. You know, Bill or there was the, the talk about you know he got pulled for messing up some scouting plays on defense. Uh, it, you know, it seems like the it seems like a lack of length is not what's it, that's that that's, to me that's not what's making Nick Timberlake a bad defender, right? There's other issues I think beyond beyond that. That's kind of hurting him defensively. Whereas with Jawar McDowell. I think if you add in the length of Johnny Furphy to Jamar McDowell, that would certainly increase his his potency a lot more on defense and uh, maybe could even add to his game offensively as well, right? I mean, Furphy's length to Timberlake on offense, what does that really add? Hard to say, really. So I'm going with Jamar McDowell here uh, for Johnny Furphy's length. I think that'd be probably best for KU and I think best for McDowell. And I just... And basically, for me, it comes down to, I think it would add a lot more to McDowell than it would to what Timberlake has. I don't, like, I don't think that's the issue for Timberlake. So that's probably why I would go with McDowell. There. This question from Trent. Who is Bryson Tiller? Ah, glad you asked. Bryson Tiller is a six foot nine class 2025 power forward from Overtime Elite. He is 247 Sports' sixth-rated player in the class of 2025. Recently took a visit to Kansas. Uh, Currently, it uh, seems like Kansas, Indiana, Alabama, Auburn are kind of in the top uh, discussion for Tiller. I think there was some brief thought for Kansas that Tiller could be a guy that would maybe reclass and join this team at semester. Uh, You know, Bill Self, if you listen to some of his comments previously earlier in the semester he talked a lot about looking to add an additional player and I think T- 
Tiller was a guy that was maybe on KU's radar as somebody that might fit that bill of adding in at, at semester. Uh, but I don't know if that's still on the table or not. Uh, so we'll see. He did. So he visited uh, KU over the weekend. He was there for the uh, Missouri game. I believe he has a visit scheduled for Indiana as well uh, coming up. So he'll be heading to Indiana. Uh, so KU and Indiana seem like the top two right now. But yeah, he's a six-rated player, five-star uh, in the class of 2025. And again, I, I think they're. I think the idea initially, partly from KU, was maybe there's the possibility of him uh, reclassing and joining KU to add some extra depth. That was a that was a big discussion from Bill Self. Uh, there was some talk back in even like October before the season started from Bill Self about looking to add another player internationally on top of Johnny Furphy, basically to add some extra depth to, to KU, just some extra bodies to KU. Doesn't seem like that's really come to fruition. Uh, and again, I, with Tiller, it's hard to say if that's on the table or not, that he could uh, potentially still join at semester. It seems unclear. I mean, I think the fact that he remains uncommitted after the visit to Kansas and he's going to be taking a visit to Indiana would suggest that maybe he's not interested in committing very quickly and then reclassing very quickly either. So uh, that seems potentially off the table, but uh, certainly a, a recruit to keep an eye on for Kansas and a guy that I think Kansas is still very much want would, would want to have on the team even if he's unable to join them uh, earlier than maybe they were unable to join as early as maybe K would have hoped, but he's certainly a guy you want to keep an eye on. Uh, five-star recruit from overtime. He leads six foot nine, 240 pounds. So plays that four position really. And uh, number six overall in 247 sports is uh, top recruit rankings for the class. So hopefully Trent, that answers your question about who is uh, Bryson Tiller. This question comes from Adam. Who was on your Mount Rushmore of KU athletes using only ones from 2023? Can be any sport. All right, so I think let's let's get some of the obvious ones out of the way here first right away. I think Devin Neal definitely has to be on, definitely has to be on this, the Mount Rushmore. So first of all, Mount Rushmore, there's what? Are there four presidents on Mount Rushmore? I don't even know. I should probably know this. Uh, yeah, it looks like, the, oh, is it only three? No, 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 it's four. So we get four four options here. I think Devin Neal has to be one. I just think he he's got to be on there. I think Devin Neal for sure is one. And uh, if you want to go outside the box a little bit, I was thinking about this. You could you could go back to the spring season and look at a guy like uh, Cody Shoji Naga. Would you consider adding him from KU baseball, freshman who had a phenomenal season for KU in the spring of 2023. Uh, he was a big-time player. Is he somebody you would consider adding? I mean, he hit 378 on the season uh, and started 46 games, played in 53, 196 at-bats. He had six home runs, 11 doubles, 32 runs driven in, and uh, only struck out 25 times in 196 at-bats. Uh, was, was was very, very impressive, and that was a really quality defender as well. So is, is he a guy, would you consider, from the baseball team going back to, to – the, uh, the spring semester, would you consider adding him, maybe? But I think Devin Neal's definitely one. I think uh, I think there's a case to be made for Jason Bean. I think there's a case to be made for Jason Bean, uh, considering what he's done for KU football this season. Uh, I think when you look at the basketball team, I'd have a hard time putting Hunter Dickinson on there, just because 
you know, he still he still has a lot to add. I feel like, right? I think it'd be a, bit, a bit premature to put him on there, right? It'd be. It, I think if you put Hunter Dickinson on there, it would have been like if you had carved Mount Rushmore in like eighteen like fifty and put Abraham Lincoln on. Like you know, eh, he hasn't done any. He hasn't done it yet. Like 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 I think he will, but I don't want to give him. You know, I don't want to build the statue too early uh, for Hunter Dickinson. So I think from KU basketball, you'd probably be better off. Maybe putting KJ Adams on there. You know, he's he's been he's he's gone through a lot. He's been playing inspired recently. I don't know. I like so like I said, Devin Neal's a lock to me. I mean, lock. I think the case can be made for Jason Bean. If you want to go outside the box, I think Cody Shojinaga from the uh, KU baseball team in the spring could definitely be on there. Uh, and again, I, I think you could probably add somebody from basketball. KJ Adams, maybe Dwan Harris, maybe uh, Kevin McCuller again, maybe I don't know. There's I think you could make a case for any of those guys. But, uh, yeah, to me, Devin Neal is the only guy that's a lock. I would, eh, I don't know, Jason Bean may be a lock, too. I would maybe lock in Jason Bean. Jason Bean, Devin Neal. I'll go Cody Shojinaga. I'll put Shojinaga on there because of the year that he had as a freshman for KU Baseball. Uh Oh, and then, oh, okay, yeah. Well, for the last one, I know what I'll do for the last one. For the last one, how about Reagan Cooper? Reagan Cooper. Phenomenal season for KU Volleyball. Uh, helped them get a tournament win. Got drafted into the uh, inaugural Pro Volleyball League here in the U.S. That'd be my four. That'd be my four. I'll go Devin Neal, Jason Bean, Cody Shojinaga, Reagan Cooper uh, for 2023. For Mount Rushmore. Uh, and then uh, Derek, he is sick, but he was able to still miraculously muster out and type out this question that he submitted. Uh, Derek. He said, Derek from the sick grave. Because I know you will hate this question, would you rather KU basketball make the Final Four but get Villanova'd or KU football make the Big 12 title game and lose by 50? So I, I assume he's talking about for KU football, I guess, next season. I would probably rather have KU basketball make the Final Four and get Nova'd just because when you think about March Madness, when you think about the NCAA tournament, when you think about all that, Making the Final Four, in and of itself, I mean, you hang a banner for that. You hang a banner for making the Final Four. So, obviously, while winning the national title is the number one goal, making the Final Four is certainly is certainly a big deal. The Final Four is something that's used when you compare coaches. When you say, oh, Bill Self's made X number of Final Fours. Tom Izzo, X number, you know. It's, it's, it's one of those types of stats. So, it's definitely important to make the Final Four. And I think you can still have a lot of positive memories from still making a Final Four, even if your season ends in kind of a bad way in the Final Four. So I would probably pick that because I, for KU football, I don't, I mean, losing a football game by 50 to me is it would be worse than losing a basketball game by, you know, 20, 30, 40, whatever. I think it's, I think it's worse. I think it's worse. And when you're, you know, in, in football, if you're just getting absolutely pummeled, it's just so hard to come back, right? In basketball, you know, I mean, you look at look at KU basketball from when they won the national title, right? You're down 15 at the half. You're feeling not great, but you can still come back from that. Whereas if you're if you're in a football game and you're down 28 nothing at the half, that that feels significantly worse, <laughs> right? Uh, so there's just I think I think you can you can still find some of the positives of, of losing a, a tough game in the Final Four. In basketball versus just getting absolutely blown out 
in uh, in football. So I would probably go with making the Final Four because, A, you get to hang a banner. B, I still think it'd be probably more, inter- more like better. Plus, you get the you get the fact that you've won previous games in the tournament. In football, K football losing the Big 12 title game, you lose the Big 12 title. You lose by 50. That just sounds horrible. And uh, yeah, not not fun at all. So I I would go with uh, <laughs> I would go with losing in the final four uh, in this scenario. So thank you to Derek for submitting a question that he knew that I would not enjoy because I the, the either or questions. You're right, they're always tough because I don't I hate I don't like have being forced to, to pick one or the other. Uh, but this one I'll go with uh, KU basketball losing in the final four. So all right, that's our KU mailbag for today here on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. Thanks so much to everybody that submitted questions. It's my favorite segment of the week. Why? Because we get to interact with you, the listeners, on our KU mailbag. So, as I said, we do it every week. So, if you have a question and you want to submit, it can be about anything. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be KU-related or anything like that. You can head to our Twitter at RCST1320 uh, or our email, RCST1320am at gmail.com. Hit us up, submit a question, and uh, we will definitely answer it in the future. All right, coming up here on the other side, we're going to be joined by David Lesky of Inside the Crown to talk a little Kansas City Royals. The Royals have been very active so far this offseason. We're going to break down some of what Kansas City has done with David next. Also coming up later on in the show in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll get to some Lance Leipold audio as he talked about uh, the bowl game preparation for UNLV, among other things. So that'll be coming up later on in the 5 o'clock hour as well. David Lesky joins us next. This is RCST on KLWN. About half past four here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. I'm Nick Springer. Derek Johnson out sick today. And uh, the Kansas City Royals have been making some moves in the offseason. Maybe something that Royals fans aren't totally used to or know how to feel about. And so... uh, we're joined by David Lesky right now from Inside the Crown to hopefully maybe talk us through a little bit about some of these moves that KU, or excuse me, that the Royals are doing. Sorry, I just had KU on my mind, uh, that the Royals are doing. So, uh, David, uh, haven't talked to you in a little bit. Uh, how, how you doing, man? How's everything going? Everything's good. You know, it's um, been a really quiet offseason uh, until it wasn't, and now it's now it's loud. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Royals obviously made some, some additions. Uh, let, let's start with Seth Lugo, right? Uh, first of all, how would you rate the contract that they gave him three years, forty-five million, I believe, and uh, kind of what what do you see maybe his role being? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't love the contract, and I, I don't care so much about the fifteen million. Doesn't bother me because whatever, it's fifteen million dollars in baseball, which is like nothing. It's the third-year player option that I don't love, and I and I'm guessing that's the way they had to get him to get, to get him to come to Kansas City. It's fine. It's not a big deal. It's just that there's no upside in that because. If he's good for two years, he doesn't opt into that, and they don't have him for 2026. If he's bad for two years or bad in 2025 or whatever, then they've got a guy who they're paying $15 million to who they probably don't want. So, so that's, that's, a, that's a downside of that. But also, it is, you know, it kind of is what it is with the Royals because they're, you know, they, they're a bad team, and they've got to pay that tax. So um, contract-wise, Whatever, not my favorite thing. But I like I like Lugo as a pitcher. I think he makes the Royals better. I think he, uh, you know, slots in the middle of the rotation nicely. Move Jordan Lyles down a spot, which is important um, because I people I don't I don't know if anybody's going to agree with me on this, but I will shout from the, the rooftops that if Jordan Lyles is your fifth starter, you're probably 
actually kind of liking what he gives you. Because you, to get six innings from your fifth starter, doesn't you know, it's your fifth starter. And I know that those guys, it, the one, ones don't match up with ones, twos with twos all year long. Only, it only lasts a couple weeks. But, you know, to, to have your worst starter be a guy who you know can give you innings is, is useful. So I think that Lugo bumping him down helps a lot. Um, you know, overall, I like, I like the, 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 the direction of the team with him on it. Um, it's just, it's just that 30 year as, as a player option that kind of bumped me out a little bit. Do you have any concerns possibly about his age? Uh, 30, I think 34, right? Uh, coming yeah. Into the um, yes and no. So he has low mileage because he was a reliever for so long, which is a good thing. But there's also a little bit of concern. He threw 146 innings roughly in 2023, and he had never thrown more than 101, which with last time he had that was, I believe, 2018. So uh, could there be uh, a bit of a, a lull the year after he jumped his innings a lot? Maybe. It could be. Um, he also may have prepared properly and, no issues. So I don't really have a lot of concern about that, um, especially because it's a short deal. You know, three years is not crazy. He, he doesn't rely on power. So, I mean, it's not like you're going to say, well, he, he only gets guys out when he's throwing 97, and he might be throwing 94 by the end of the deal. No, he doesn't. That's not the case. So that, that helps too. Um, but, I mean, there, there are always age concerns with a guy in his mid thirties in, in baseball. And, and there's those same concerns apply here. I just, I, I think that Lugo is the sort of guy, at least that they're a little bit less important, I, I guess. When you look at some of the other additions, the Royals made added Will Smith. Uh, do, do you expect Will Smith to be the closer uh, for this team or kind of what, what do you think his role might be? Um, you know, yes, I think, I think he will be the closer in name. I also think that Matt Quattrero and, and his staff are not necessarily, well, I, I mean, I guess I don't know what they promised him, but I think that there's a pretty good chance that Will Smith will get more than the plurality of save opportunities, but maybe not that many, maybe not, you know, uh, 95% of them, because he is not a dominant pitcher. Um, he's got experience in the back of, back of games in the ninth inning. He's, got, he's had 230 save seasons. He saved 22, I believe, last year for the Rangers. Um so he's got the experience there, and he will—he'll be the guy who gets most of the jobs. But I mean, I, I think they're going to play matchups, and if—and if it's the eighth inning and Will Smith matches up better, then he's not going to pitch the ninth, probably. Um, I mean, they—they kind of did that with Scott Barlow last season, and and you know they had a role of Chapman, which is a little bit different because they had a, a dominant late inning reliever along with him. But um, yeah, I—I I, I think he'll get the bulk of them, but not all of them. Do you think Will Smith will be? You mentioned uh, Barlow and Chapman there. Do you think Will Smith will be a type of player that Royals bring in, hoping that maybe he has a strong start to the season, and they try to flip maybe towards the deadline? Yeah, at this point, um, knowing what we know about the Royals from twenty twenty three, if Will Smith is a Royal on, well, I guess I don't know when the trade deadline is because they don't. It's not July thirty first anymore. It kind of moves around. But let's say if Will Smith is a Royal on August tenth, I'll be pretty surprised. I, I think that that's that's the day that. Like, let's like, make sure we're past the deadline. Um, I, I just don't. Uh, he's either the reason he's a royal after the deadline is he has a bad year, or the Royals have a good year, and I and I think he'll be good enough to get moved, and the Royals won't be good enough to, to keep him. One other move that the Royals did make in their uh, in their pitching was uh, Chris Stratton. 
what, what do you think of that move, and where do you think maybe he could rank in the Royals' bullpen to start the season? It's another solid move for this team. It's He's, he's similar to Seth Lugo, um, which is funny because they signed about or it was announced about 12 minutes apart. Uh, it felt like, hey, the Royals signed Seth Lugo. Oh, by the way, they also got Chris Stratton. Um, he, I think he's a middle reliever. Yeah, in, on this team, maybe he pitches some, some setup roles. I don't know. Um, he's a solid pitcher. He's a guy who can sit in the middle of the bullpen. And similar to what Lugo can do in pushing Jordan Lyles down, Stratton can do in pushing some other guys down. Um, you know, one some some of some of these moves are more about what they do for other players already on the roster than the actual player, which is kind of funny. But Carlos Hernandez is the guy who comes to mind in the bullpen. And before the season, I think the Royals were not shy about saying, hey, we don't think Carlos Hernandez can be a starter right now in his career because they don't think he can handle the four days off in between. Um, not that he can't do it physically, but that he needs to be in the bullpen to have some uncertainty. So he's not given that time where he's you know, kind of free to do whatever he wants. Um, and knowing that, when he got elevated after Barlow was moved and Chapman and Jose Quas um, and Amir Garrett was let go, all that, and, and and Carlos Hernandez became the guy in the bullpen, that's when the struggle started. And so, to me, I wonder a little bit how much of that was mental and how much of that would go away with him being able to be back in middle relief. And Chris Stratton, is, is Chris Stratton, Will Smith, Nick Anderson, those, those three additions, in addition to James MacArthur emerging, hopefully John McMillan's healthy um, because I think he showed last year in the minors and is very, very brief in the majors that he can be an impact reliever. That allows Carlos Hernandez to just be another guy in the bullpen, which, yeah, you wish the guy who throws 100 with the splitter and slider that he has could be a, an elite closer, but maybe he just can't do it mentally. And it's nice to have that arm in the middle innings, and I think guys like Stratton help to push him into that spot. And not only, but it's not just that he's there because he's going to push Carlos Hernandez down. He's solid. He's a solid pitcher. He's been he's been good since he moved to the bullpen um, five six years ago. He's got a really good fastball. I, I think that there's more to his slider than he's shown uh, the last couple of years. So yeah, I think that he can be a really nice addition to this team. And when you look at what the Royals have done in this short amount of time with some of the additions they've made, JJ Piccolo had previously kind of mentioned the the budget range, so to speak, that the Royals were looking at to spend. Do you get the impression maybe that the Royals might be done making any, I guess, medium to quote unquote big moves, or kind of what do you see from them next in free agency? You know, I don't think uh, I don't know what the size of the next move is going to be. They're not done. I can promise you that because you don't go into an off season and say, "Hey, we're going to go get two starting pitchers and and bulk up the bullpen and get a bat and then not do it." Now you may not like what they do. I don't. I, you know, they might they might make a move that people don't love, and that's. That wouldn't be terribly surprising either. But all the indications that I've gotten from talking to some people who know more than I do are that they're still in on guys like Marcus Stroman and Lucas Giolito. Um, J.J. Piccolo, the number that we saw was $30 million. Um, generally, if a, if a GM says a number, that's not the maximum. <laughs> because if you give people what it is a PR PR one one, right? If, if you tell people <laughs> yeah. we're going to spend 30 million and then you spend 28 million, people are going to say, where's the 2 million? If you say we're, we have 30 million to spend and then you spend 40 million people go, wow, they went above and beyond. And so you look better. And, and so I think that if you say 30 million, 
that is not the end. That is not the top number. And, uh, you know, let, let's do quick math. Did a 15 on Lugo, three and a half for 2024 on Stratton, five on Smith. That's 23 and a half million, six and a half million left to go. I think there's more than that. I really do. And I mean, they can make some moves. They can move, they can take Salvador Perez and, and shave some salary there. And maybe they end up net plus 30. But ultimately, I, I think that there's, there's another decently sized move left. And that's, it's possible that they don't. It's possible that they do make a move. It's like MJ Melendez for Brian Wu. I don't know from the Mariners, just off the top of my head. I think that's possible. Um, and Wu doesn't make any money because he's a zero to three player, so he's not in arbitration yet. So maybe, maybe they don't get that number. But I, I do. I would be pretty surprised if they don't end up spending at least twelve to fifteen million more in free agency. Um, so I, I think there's there's still moves to come. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, Marcus Stroman and Lucas Giolito there. Uh, who are some, maybe some other guys you think might make sense in free agency for the Royals to go after with that with that additional money that you alluded to? Yeah, I'm, I mean, starting-wise, those two. Jack Flaherty has been mentioned a few times. I've, I've heard, it's funny, I've heard from both sides, or from from multiple people that the Royals both really are interested in him and have and want nothing to do with him. So I don't know what to believe there. <laughs> I think that that's, that's a bit of a weird, weird situation. Um Michael Walker is another guy who, who you hear about. Sean Manaya, Martin Perez. I mean, there, there's a handful of options. I also, I, I have heard from the start that there's mutual interest with Ryan Stanek, who um, was with the Rays for a long time, went to the Marlins for a little while, Astros most recently, from Kansas City area, but with the Blue Valley High, I think, maybe. I can't remember if it's Blue Valley or Blue Valley West. Like, whatever one, doesn't matter. It's close. Um, also pitch with the Rays with Mac Quattrero and Paul Hoover there. So there, there's a lot of ties. I, I wouldn't be too surprised if they bring in him as another reliever. Um, although I didn't necessarily have Chris Stratton on my bingo board. So maybe, <laughs> maybe he's the guy who comes in instead of Stanix. But, but there, there's, there's some options left out there. And bat wise too, they've been, they've been attached to Lourdes Gurriel Jr., Tommy Pham. Um, I, I could see, I could see them getting in on a, on a trademark. I'm not sure who that would be necessarily, but uh, they've, they've, like I said, there. I think there are moves left to be made. Well, one of the guys that the Royals were definitely not involved with was Shohei Otani, as uh, the the uh, circus of his ultimate signing with the with the Dodgers. I'm I'm kind of just more curious. I want to get your take maybe on just kind of how the contract played out with some of this deferral stuff and as it pertains to baseball as a whole and, and maybe affecting a small market team like the Royals, just kind of what was maybe your thoughts on how that played out? Yeah, it, it was weird. Um, I mean, it was weird from the start, right? I think back to, was it Friday that was the plane situation? I think it was yeah, Friday. Yeah, yeah, flight tracker that. gate, yeah, you had that going on. Yeah. I mean, by the way, if, if you haven't read that story, I think it was Stephen Nesbitt in The Athletic. It is so good about, um, I'm blanking on his name, the Shark Tank guy who was actually flying. Oh, it was yeah, yeah. really good story, if you haven't read that yet. Um, yeah, it's odd. And then, you know, the number comes out $700 million, and then you find out, oh, significant deferrals, and you find out $680 million deferred. I, I keep seeing people saying, okay, well, MLB is valuing it at $460 million. So that's what we should think of it as. And I'm, I'm sitting here like, but he's still getting seven hundred million dollars. <laughs> like, I, I understand what you're valuing at for luxury tax purposes, 
But that's not what he's getting. And the other side of it is, so the Dodgers are paying him you know, $20 million over the next 10 years and $680 million for the 10 years after that. Why? I don't understand. Maybe I'm just stupid. But I don't understand why that gets looked at as different money than, say, Fernando Tatis, who signed for, what was it, $341 million over 14 years. Why is, why is year 14 of that contract not looked at differently? I mean, that's a long way away, too. Money's going to be different in 14 years, at this point, like nine years. But money, you sign up, let's, let's say Bobby Witt Jr. signs for 14 years and $500 million. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I guess maybe it could, but whatever. Why is year 14 of that deal looked at in today's present money? But if they went seven years for $500 million and deferred half of it, year 14 would be looked at differently. Does that make sense? Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. It just yeah, I, I, the the you're right. The money situation is just kind of weird, right? It just doesn't add up to me. And it's I've had multiple people reach out and tell me, "Oh, you're wrong. This is not manipulating the, the luxury tax." No, it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> you gave a seven hundred million dollar contract, and you're only being taxed forty six million a year on it. I, I just don't. There is no way around this. Sure, the player agreed. You agreed. It's in the rules. I'm not saying that you're doing something wrong. I'm saying that you're manipulating it. And that that rubs me the wrong way. I don't I don't think it's bad for the game necessarily. I think it could be if it becomes a trend. Um, but I I do I do think it's kind of frustrating, and I don't like it. Sure, sure. Uh, one more question before I let you go. Just kind of encapsulating some of the moves that the rules have already made uh, right now, and, and kind of where they are at in free agency. These early moves. How many wins do you think maybe that that adds to this team? Or looking forward to next season. Early moves, have you thinking this team could win blank games? Yeah, it's an interesting question because the question is, what's the, what's the baseline? Um, I, yeah, J.J. Piccolo said, well, we weren't a 106-loss team. Well, you were. You absolutely were. <laughs> but there are some underlying numbers. The Pythagorean record was 64-98. The record uh, based on base runs, which is kind of looking at the underlying statistics, was 66-96. and 96. So, do you see this team as a 106-loss team to start? I mean, they, they lost 106, but when you start to predict, you have to base on other things, too. Are they more of a 98-loss team, 96, 102? I don't know what the answer is. I, I think the moves they've made, because of how bad the bottom of the Royals roster was and what these guys can be, I think, I think Lugo probably adds three wins. I think Will Smith probably adds a win. I think Nick Anderson, Chris Strat, I mean, maybe it's four wins for Lugo, two for Smith, one each for um, Anderson and Stratton. Okay, so that's eight wins. So that puts you at 64 if you start from the 56. But I also think what they're knocking off the roster is probably three or four wins. They're losses. So now you're looking at 12 wins. And if you start them at 56, then you're at 68. But if I, I tend to think that the truth is somewhere in between. I think they're probably more of a 60-win team. I, so right now, I'd, I'd say 71 or 72 wins. Um, but you know, there's, there's a lot of time left in the offseason <laughs> for me to convince myself that it's 78 wins. <laughs> <laughs> 
Absolutely. Well, hey, David, uh, appreciate your time as always. David Lesky from Inside the Crown. As the offseason continues to unfold for the Royals, you definitely want to check out Inside the Crown for the latest on uh, the Kansas City Royals in the offseason. David, appreciate your time as always, and uh, hopefully we'll have more Royal stuff to talk about with you soon here coming up as the offseason continues. Hey, fingers crossed. Thanks, Nick. Yep. Thanks, David. That was David Lesky of Inside the Crown. Once again, go check out all of his work over there at Inside the Crown. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, some Bill Belichick rumors, a little bit of updates as well on KU, and then in the 5 o'clock hour, some Lance Leipold audio as well coming up later on in the show. We're going to take a timeout. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. 5 o'clock hour here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Nick Springer, Derek Johnson. Unfortunately, uh, out sick today, so you know it's that time of year. People getting sick. Hopefully, Derek will be back in tomorrow. But it's been a fun show so far today. We got some audio coming up from Lance Leipold. He met with the media over the weekend, talking a little bit about uh, the upcoming bowl game. As we're now less than two weeks away from uh, that game in the Guaranteed Rate Bowl for KU in Phoenix, as they'll be taking on UNLV. Talked a little bit about a little bit of an early preview of UNLV earlier in the show. So if you missed that, you can always check it out on our Best of RCSD podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. And also, you can get it at KUSports.com. Don't forget, coming up after the show tonight at 6 o'clock, Hawk Talk with Bill Self. As uh, For the first time in a couple weeks, the Jayhawks don't have a midweek basketball game. They're sort of a game in the middle of the week. So uh, they're having a Hawk Talk with Bill Self tonight from 6 to 7. You'll be able to hear that right here on KLWN as Kansas gears up for a road trip to take on Indiana on Saturday. And, of course, you'll be able to hear that game between KU and the Hoochers right here on KLWN as well. Pre-game coverage starting at 10 a.m. with an 11.30 a.m. tip-off between Kansas and Indiana. And you'll be able to hear that right here on your original home for the Hawks on KLWN. Also on the basketball front, we will be having our first high school basketball broadcast coming up tomorrow night of Free State Basketball. The girls and the boys playing tomorrow night against Shawnee Mission West as they get their season underway. Both those games will be right here on KLWN. You'll be able to hear that uh, with myself and Craig Hershiser on the call. Girls game tips off at 5.30. Boys game tips off roughly thereafter, scheduled for about 7 o'clock, but somewhere around there after the conclusion of the girls game. And uh, pregame coverage will begin at 5.20 right here on KLWN. All right, so as I said, we do have some Lance Leipold audio to get to here as he met with the media over the weekend ahead of KU taking on UNLV in the Guaranteed Rate Bowl on December 26th. So we're now less than two weeks away from that game. So we'll get to part one here with Lance Leipold and then part two a little bit later on here in the 5 o'clock hour. Here's the first part of Lance Leipold meeting with the media over the weekend. Gave promotions to Jim Zabrowski and Jordan Peterson. How is it all over their responsibility to um, you know, well, obviously, gyms will change a lot for, uh, um, you know, the the bowl game. He's calling the game. Uh, you know, Jordan's. It's it's probably just more recognizing some of the current work that both of these guys do and their impact. Um, you know, uh, I, I think you see that across college football with with different titles. And and Jordan had past game coordinator. It's just probably. Uh, another small promotion, I guess, of sorts, and and continues. He's, when Brian missed first game, um, you know, and Jordan called it, there was just some things that um, kind of naturally evolved, and, and there's some ways that, that Jordan has kind of, you know, like I say, evolved into that, that role of, of doing some things and being another voice w- with the defensive unit at times. So it's not a, it's not a huge change but uh, again um, the collaboration of of both sides of the ball is always there and uh, they have that and uh, and I think probably the next thing will go in the you know uh, 
Jeff Grimes joining us, and I think that was one of the, the key factors when I talked to people is um, that the you know our terminology, our our philosophies and schemes are going to stay intact. There'll be additions and modifications, I'm sure, as it as that continues as well. But I wanted someone that was going to be able to work well with the group that's already here. And I think uh, Jim's strengths and, and things are going to be a great complement as well as the rest of the guys in the room. You mentioned hiring Jeff. Mm -hmm. What did that process look like of narrowing down and deciding on um, Like I said, well, I reached out to multiple candidates. I had many people reaching out as well. Um, again, some, some probably in just a tight end type position versus uh, coordinating type opportunities. Um, I was overwhelmed with some of the interest because uh, uh, some of the people that I that I reached out to, my thought might have been maybe not interested, and they were. And as it, as it continued, again, that fit of what we're doing, knowledge of the conference, uh, schematics, what else they could add, all those things. And um, but I also had um, many members, not just the offensive staff, many members of our program staff members. Um, you know, talk with Jeff and uh, because it wasn't going to be, it's ultimately my decision, but I wanted it to be a good fit all the way around. And um, it, it, it just kept, like I said, stacking up to be the right decision. Having the co OC title for Coach Sebastian yeah. and then Coach mm -hmm. Grimes, what do you imagine that relationship yeah. looking like during the game? Oh, he just got here last night. I mean, again, uh, you know, we're going to continue to look, and um, main focus is getting this team ready to play for this game. But we've talked about different scenarios that uh, whether Jim Jim move upstairs on a permanent basis, and uh, Jeff's called the game mainly from from the from the field in his career. He's done both, um, so that could evolve, and 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 Jim's. Uh, Experience in the obviously in knowledge of the past game and implementing those thoughts through the week may give us a, a, a more chance, and, and that's where I think some of that impactfulness of Jim having probably more say in the past game than maybe previously, but um, is on game day. Not, I mean, whole, again, guys, when we, when you sit in there during the week, there's a lot of people from analysts to everyone that that gives input, and the coordinator will make the final decision. Mm -hmm. What does the next few weeks look like? Well, we're, we're, man, there's a lot of things going on, Michael. There's, I mean, but uh, he's watched his first practice. Um, he's, uh, yeah, he, we're, we've got, we've got some recruits here. He's going to meet some of them briefly, but he's just trying to get the lay of the land. He's going to watch and learn and see our practice. Like, yeah, chance and he saw some things that he's like, wow, how long you been doing that? And what's that? You know, so that's part of it. He's going to sit in with the staff and see. He's got a chance to evaluate our personnel. We're going to get him out and meet some of our recruits. We're going to, you know, and and uh, and again, we've we've moved very very fast on this. Okay, so some of this is, uh, um, you know, seventy two hours at a time, and we'll continue to. But I he'll be. He'll be involved in watching and being part of this that we're hoping to make this as easy transition for, uh, for everyone. And uh, as I told the team today, when I introduced them, my 
first responsibility was to add to our program for their sake and and to make sure it was somebody that could fit and uh, again we've talked a lot in these rooms we've talked a lot of, in different areas about alignment and how important that is and what has really helped this program move forward as quickly as it has and i feel that jeff grimes is the perfect fit to help us continue on that path you guys were leading up to baylor in 2022 you had mentioned him as someone you thought would be a head coach not long after that so how excited you must have went back and read some old. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've uh, again. I would, um, you know, administration, coaches. Um, sometimes you have to make decisions for the for that that have to be made, not always want to be made, and and sometimes, I, unfortunately. I don't like using the word casualty, but there's there's people that that sometimes lose jobs, and and, and um, so those things happen in other programs and uh, or in college football or college athletics. Um, like you said, if you if you look back after the '21 season, Jeff Grimes was the hottest one of the hottest coordinators in the country. Okay. Well, it's a, that was a team that's picked to take last and won the league. You look at their team this last year, they played a lot of young players. And with young players, unfortunately, can, can cause inconsistencies and not to always the success they are. Now, we didn't play them, so we didn't study them. I don't know, okay? And I didn't really even worry about that. I worry about what I saw in their abilities in the two years we did. And as you said, uh, um, I was... Uh, extremely excited to, for, for his interest. When he was let go, I, I reached out to him, invite him up if he, and said, if you, did you want to come up and uh, if you, if you want to come up and watch some bowl practice, I'd love to get a chance just to talk with you and why. And he had said that we were already talking in those regards before the position opened up. All right, that was Lance Leipold speaking with the media ahead of the bowl game between KU and UNLV. Thought he had a lot of interesting things to say uh, there in that first part, most notably with the promotions of Jim Zabrowski and Jordan Peterson. And uh, a lot of the focus was obviously given to the promotion of Jim Zabrowski and the reaction to Andy Kolnicki leaving KU football to move on to Penn State. But I think that promotion of Jordan Peterson was very, very significant and definitely cannot go overlooked. Uh, you know, you think about Peterson, he already had some experience as a defensive play caller previously. And then you think about the fact that he had to step in and be the defensive coordinator for a game earlier this season for KU when uh, Brian Bowen was dealing with some health issues. Did a great job, and Lance Leipold kind of expanded on that, mentioning how based off how he performed in that game and then sort of there was it became a natural progression of, okay, you know, this is a guy that's very significant. And then, you know, you set that aside and then you look at what uh, Jordan Peterson's impact has been on the recruiting show for Kansas. He's, he's uh, basically hand-built some pipelines out there to the Arizona uh, area. And, you, of course, you've got a lot of those, those kids that are getting ready to filter into the program, guys like Deshaun Warner, guys like uh, Jonathan Kamara as well. So you've got guys coming in. That certainly you want to keep Jordan Peterson around, as he's uh, one of the I think one of the hottest young coaches in the country. So I think that was a really really significant move by Kansas to help uh, keep Jordan Peterson in the fold. And then with the promotion of Jim Zabrowski to offensive coordinator, you know I think the the initial reaction immediately following you know the minutes, hours, and the day or so after Andy Kolnicki decided to leave for Penn State, my thought process at least was. Okay, makes most sense that now Kay is going to just promote from within. Jim Zabrowski's been an offensive coordinator on Lance Leipold, Lance Leipold before. That would make the most sense. And it, and it really seemed like maybe it was turning that direction. 
But then uh, Lance Leipold kind of got into reaching out to different candidates for the offensive coordinator job and was a bit surprised by the interest. And I think that speaks very significantly to the progression of KU football under Lance Leipold and where this program is headed is the fact that you know, this was a job that a lot of coaches were interested in because they see what Kansas is building, they see what Kansas is doing, and suddenly, you know, this is not a job where it's like, oh, okay, you know, it's, I'm kind of taking a, a golden ticket here, you know, if I can somehow turn around this terrible program, you know, maybe I'll become a legend, to where now it's a, wow, this is a program that is legit, this is a program that has a lot to offer, and uh, and can really, really be very, very successful with, with the right fit, so I thought that was really interesting that Lance Leipold spent some time talking about that and and how much the how much he was overwhelmed by the interest and I think again that speaks very highly to uh, what this where this program is headed for KU and uh, you know we, we kind of talked about it when KU did hire Jeff Grimes it seemed to make the mo- seemed to make the most sense right it seemed to be the best fit he had previously been a, a tight ends coach and offensive coordinator at Baylor uh, had taken. BYU to new heights uh, with with Zach Wilson uh, the years that they were there and and kind of runs a similar style of offense that Andy Kolnicki runs a little bit you know wanting to lean on the run game and uh, devise some different schemes like that so it just it just made the most sense right and then and then obviously at the end there you know with, with Jeff Grimes I think a lot of people maybe initially saw wait a second this guy was fired after being the offensive coordinator of a three and nine Baylor team but I think you got to take a look at the bigger picture. Two years ago, he was the offensive coordinator that led Baylor to a 12 and 2 season and led them to the Big 12 title game, and uh, and was very very impressive. Had a top five rushing offense in the country, so I think I think it was more of a product of overarching the situation at Baylor, where they got off to a bad start. Things just didn't really seem to click. They had a lot of young players. They dealt with some injuries. And, you know, this is a guy that, that has been one of the hottest coordinators in the country really for a while. And uh, I think KU probably feels like they got a bit of a steal here with a guy that definitely has a lot of experience uh, as a coordinator, plays or wants to play a similar style that maybe Andy Kolnicki was playing and that experience he can lean on. And and so I think it makes the most sense. And then the, 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 the other final note there was the fact that he did mention that uh, even before that offensive coordinator job opened at Kansas, uh, he was talking with with Jeff Grimes and had even invited him up to come up to watch some bowl practice. So even before the position opened, which I think is significant as well, and I think it maybe speaks to the type of relationship those two guys have, and maybe the type of relationship they can have going forward as well. And it feels like Jeff Grimes fit, fits right schematically. Uh, I think he fits, and I think he probably fits into the system as well. We'll see how it kind of unfolds with him over the course of spring ball and and sort of integrating maybe some different things that he wants to do uh, along with Jim Zabrowski and uh, going from there. So. Definitely a really, really exciting time for KU football. Uh, they've got a lot of momentum, it seems like, going into this bowl game as well, which is uh, which is really, really good. And uh, they have a chance at a 9-1 season, something that not very many teams in the history of KU football can say that they've done. So the arrow continues to trend upward for Kansas. And uh, that was just the first part of Lance Leipold speaking with the media. He spoke some more. We're going to take a short time out. When we come back, we'll break down more of what Lance Leipold said with the media over the weekend uh, as he was previewing UNLV in the Guaranteed Rate Bowl. We're going to take a short break here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. You're listening on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Well, that's it. If you're listening on our podcast side, thanks for tuning in. Please give us a positive review if your platform allows you to do so, as you can find the show anywhere you get your podcasts with the best of RCST podcast. If you do have any questions for the show, whether it's for a mailbag, just something you think that'd be fun to talk about, you can reach out to us on our Twitter page at RCST1320. You can also email us if you don't have Twitter. RCST1320AM at gmail.com. That's RCST1320AM at gmail.com. And if you want to listen live, 3 to 6 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday on KLWN, KLWN KLWN.com, and the KLWN app. Have a good rest of your day and see you next podcast.